the National Parks Traveler, where we explore the national parks and the issues that involve them. Our climate is changing, and not subtly, and it's having a great and visible impact on the national park system. This past summer, we saw flooding at Yellowstone, Death Valley, Joshua Tree, and Great Smoky Mountains National Parks, as well as at Mojave National Preserve. There have been wildfires in and around Yosemite, Sequoia, and North Cascades National Parks. Lakes Mead and Powell at Lake Mead National Recreation Area and Glen Canyon National Recreation Area continue to shrink, the result of a mega drought said to be the worst in 1,200 years. More recently, Hurricane Ian crashed into Florida as one of the strongest hurricanes in recent memory. This is Kurt Repencheck, your host at the National Parks Traveler. Are those events the result of human-driven climate change, or simply the vagaries of weather? Today, we're going to explore that question and others tied to the weather we're experiencing with Stephanie Kodish, the Senior Director and Counsel for the National Parks Conservation Association's Clean Air and Climate Programs. We'll be back with Stephanie in a minute. Listener and reader support make National Parks Traveler possible every day of the year. If you enjoy the Traveler's content, please consider a donation via nationalparkstraveler.org. The Yosemite Conservancy helps visitors connect with Yosemite through adventures, volunteering, and the arts. It's the only nonprofit dedicated to supporting Yosemite National Park and funds grants to improve trails, restore habitat, protect wildlife, and inspire the next generation of nature lovers. Learn more at yosemite.org. Full of stunning photography and thought-provoking reads, Smokey's Life is a biannual magazine produced by Great Smoky Mountains Association. Members receive it free of charge each spring and fall, and it is available for purchase in retail stores throughout Great Smoky Mountains National Park and online at smokiesinformation.org. Welcome to The Traveler, Stephanie. Thank you so much, Kurt. It's good to be with you. The big question, as I laid out in my introduction, is where do you draw the line between this is weather, it happens every day, and it changes every day, and is it climate change-driven weather? Is there a really good defining line that we know when we cross it between those two? Yeah, that's a good question. You know, there's always been extreme weather events in different parts of the country, whether wildfires in parts of the more arid West or storms, hurricanes, like what we're seeing now in Florida. But the distinction and the fuel that people have added to those weather events is really fossil fuel inspired climate changes. And that results in more intense storms, more intense and amplified wildfires, and also more frequent storms. So a storm, for example, in Yellowstone this summer, the flooding that was experienced across the park and communities, that's a a flood that might be seen once every thousand years. And those kinds of extreme events are occurring more and more frequently as a result of climate change. Yeah, I was wondering about that because, you know, in in the case of Yellowstone with those uh, devastating floods back in June, we heard, you know, once in a 500-year storm or once in a 1,000-year storm. You know, Death Valley's flooding this summer, um, again, once in a 1,000 years, and then it seemed to happen the next week after that. 
and you know Mojave deserts or Mojave National Preserves flooding. Uh, the superintendent told me they were they viewed that as as once in 25 years. Um, certainly, the the monsoon season in the southwest this year has been particularly strong. Last year, it was absent; it never really showed up. And I guess you know those changes in how we view those storms really kind of d- does it complicate the the notion of climate change and human driven climate change. So I think we have lived experiences, and we have history that tells us and shows us what these different weather events have in terms of impact across our resources, our waters, our wildlife, our landscapes. The distinction is in severity and in the confluence of events and the compounding effects. So that when you're talking about, for example, a fire, you're not only talking about a certain number of acres that may historically have been more or less in line with what you could anticipate during fire season, we are also talking about lands that have suffered from drought and you are um, igniting more and more acres because of that drought. So the two issues taken together have a compounding effect. And that is one of the grave realities of the climate crisis. You know, we just saw Hurricane Ian rip through Florida and move up the coastline there. Earlier this summer, or actually going back to the spring, I guess we had the prediction that there would be so many named storms that developed this year in the hurricane season. And then through August, most of August, people are saying, well, there's there's no hurricanes. You know, we don't believe, you know, what happened to climate change influenced weather? And then Ian erupted, emerged, and it turned into one of the most powerful hurricanes we've seen in recent memory. And so you, you've got on one hand, you know, the, the naysayers will say, well, we didn't hit all the, the named storms that we were supposed to hit. And then the ones pointed to climate change, who believe in pl- climate change is human driven, will point to Ian as, well, you know, we've got warmer ocean waters. And so that helped turn what might have been a, a tropical storm into this behemoth. That's right. You know, I think that it's totally fair to point to the reality that there's always been monstrous hurricanes in southern Florida. The state's no stranger to them. Our coastal parks have experienced those harms for a long time. The distinction, though, is these compounding factors again. So you're not only talking about warmer sea water, you're also talking about warmer air. And the result of that is that you have bigger and wetter and slower moving hurricanes that are more intense and devastating. I mean, our, our, our thoughts are with the millions of people that have been forced to evacuate and the many national parks that are in the projected path of the hurricane. So we're talking about Everglades and Biscayne in Florida, Cumberland Island, National Seashore in Georgia. They've temporarily closed for visitor and staff safety. You know, and I'm wondering with the climate change that we're seeing, I mean, you know, where I live in northern Utah, the, the daytime highs have been in the mid, mid-80s when they, they more reasonably should be in the mid-70s. And so, you know, it's, it's going into October. I haven't seen this topic discussed, but as the seasons change, as we have a warmer fall and it extends deeper, Hurricane season used to go from, I think, June 1st through November or to November 1st. 
have you heard any discussion that that calendar is going to change that instead of calling the end of hurricane season November, we might be pushing it into December because of the changing weather that climate change is bringing us? Yeah, and I, th- I think that um, that is spot on. Part of what we see is the earlier onset of spring. And so that has a consequence in our Western parks, for example, in terms of snow melt. And this, you know, again, ties back to the summer events in Yellowstone. You know, Yellowstone was forced to close its gates to visitors. That was one of the most extreme weather events in the park's history. And so the the flooding that was caused by the heavy rainfall and the above average snow melt because of these near record temperatures. They're all the direct effects of the climate crisis and they're wreaking havoc across our country. They really are. And, you know, looking at the wildfires in in California, um, this year hasn't been quite as bad as uh, 2021 was when we saw the Dixie Fire just, you know, chew through Lawson Volcano National Park. And um, I forget what complex in Sequoia, but they were just incredible blazes that... um, created their own their own weather um and as you mentioned earlier you know because of the drought that we're seeing with climate change you know the the vegetation is is more prone to to burning and um you know certainly the the winds that we've seen it's hard to ignore what's going on in terms of climate absolutely it's an alarming trend uh and it also places our parks at the forefront of the climate crisis i think that you know people see uh, and experience our national parks as emblems of the best that our nation has to offer. And it is one thing when there is an event happening in someone else's community. It's a very different thing when you recognize that as an American, these national parks are your birthright. And the climate is wreaking havoc. These changes are wreaking havoc across our national park system. And the damage is nothing new. These extreme weather events are happening all across the country. And for years, the Park Service has been operating on a shoestring budget, and it's trying to deal with decreases in staffing and record visitation, as well as decaying infrastructure. And so on top of all of these challenges, our parks are needing to deal with these intensifying threats to cultural, natural, historic resources from extreme weather. You know, it really is changing the, the face and, and not just in places like Yellowstone where um, you're going to see a realignment of that north entrance road that comes down from Gardner down to uh, Mammoth Hot Springs. But you go down to the, the coastal areas, the coastal parks. I mean, you know, Biscayne National Park already is 95% underwater naturally. Is it going to get to 100% underwater? What's going to happen with Everglades National Park and uh, the, the Flamingo area? Is that going to be going underwater? And you can just run up the coastline and watch what's going on, whether it's um, Cape Lookout National Seashore or Cape Hatteras National Seashore or even up you know, Cape Cod National Seashore. Yeah, and I also think about you know, some of our cultural and historic sites like Harriet Tubman and the communities that are adjacent and most vulnerable to the impacts of the climate crisis and how we are at the monumental time where there's this influx of new funding through the Inflation Reduction Act, through the infrastructure bill, that we could really be thinking not only how are we going to help support climate resilience across our national parks through green infrastructure, 
through restoration and adaptive practices, but also importantly through carbon mitigation so that we're not only looking to address the harms that we have before us, but also mapping towards the future that we want where we're blunting the worsening of those impacts by being wise in terms of our planning and transitioning the economy towards clean so that we are electrifying transportation so that we're making sure that we have a clean electric grid. And those are critical things to protect our national parks. They really are. We're talking today with Stephanie Kodish, the Senior Director and Counsel for the National Parks Conservation Association's Clean Air and Climate Programs. We're gonna take a short break and we'll be right back. Washington State is graced with three spectacular national parks, each different and special in their own unique ways. As the official nonprofit partner and the only philanthropic organization dedicated exclusively to supporting these parks through charitable contributions, Washington's National Park Fund has a mission to raise private support to deepen everyone's love for, understanding of, and experiences in Mount Rainier, North Cascades, and Olympic National Parks. Share your passion for these parks at WNPF.org. The Grand Teton National Park Foundation is a private, nonprofit organization that supports projects that protect and enhance Grand Teton National Park's cultural, historic, and natural resources. By funding initiatives that go beyond what the National Park Service could accomplish on its own, foundation donors improve the visitor experience and provide benefits to the national park system for decades to come. See their successes at gtnpf.org. Whether it be strategy, business planning, change management, board development, executive search, or diversity planning, Petrero Group is here to help. They mix a depth of experience in the parks and land space with a breadth of best practices from other industries. For more information or to schedule a preliminary conversation, go to potrerogroup.com. P-O-T-R-E-R-O group.com. So, Stephanie, you mentioned that um, there's a lot of money heading towards the Park Service. Um, I believe the Inflation Reduction Act um, is providing roughly $500 million um, to the Park Service to work on resiliency against climate change. Do you know where that money uh, will be put to work and and how? Um, I have rough breakdowns. The Park Service is still working to determine how... uh, it will be implementing uh, with these funds. But what we do know is that there are several pots of money dedicated to particular um, things. Um, and that includes 500 million for the Park Service to hire staff. Um, it includes 250 million for the Park Service and BLM for conservation and ecosystem and habitat restoration projects. It also includes 200 million for the Park Service's uh, deferred maintenance work. And I'm glad to kind of go through these other categories, if that's helpful. $390 million is for NOAA, uh, for climate research, modeling, forecasting, and other information. I think it's really important to recognize that while funds directly to the National Park Service are vital, there are sister agencies that have critical tasks 
that are needed in order to help ensure national parks and resources are also well protected. So that includes in the example of um, NOAA, it also includes the examples around the Environmental Protection Agency in terms of issuing regulations that will reduce emissions from cars, from oil and gas, and from power plants. Um, but even with the influx of these monies, you know, I think it's also important to take note that there is a need for disaster funding, a supplemental, um, in order to support the Park Service because the Park Service remains underfunded. And so if, if disaster relief funding is delayed for too long, the agency is going to be forced to borrow from different accounts, and that will just end up undermining further delay in critical repair projects. You know, and I think, you know, in terms of uh, disaster funding, I, I think Yellowstone's asking for $100 million to recover from the June flooding. Um, and that's just one example. I mean, I don't know what the situation is at Death Valley or Mojave National Preserve with the, the flooding that they um, endured. But it's how does how does Congress get its head around providing necessary funding that no longer seems to be a one-time appropriation? Um, each year, it seems that there's some new weather-related damage inflicted on the parks. Well, I think there's um, a moment here to screw up what the realities of climate disaster mean. You know, we're uh, around the corner from the 10-year anniversary of Hurricane Sandy that just devastated the New York Harbor, Gateway National Park, the Statue of Liberty. The price tag for the climate-induced disaster there is around $300 billion. Yeah, yeah. But there's a lot of lessons to be learned from that moment. And I think those lessons include a bipartisan ensemble coming together in order to support the repair and restoration of those park sites. Republicans and Democrats unified. They recognize the need to pull together resources in order to support the rehabilitation of those places. And I think that we have an opportunity to engage similarly, to recognize the commons, the things that we share, the values that we share, and prioritize dedicated funding in order to elevate and protect those things. And at the same time, we need to be wise in terms of how we do it. And that wisdom needs to dictate that we center vulnerable populations, that we look across our national parks as these galvanizing forces that can help bring bipartisan peoples together and that we map towards a different sustainable future that's mounted on clean energy and smarter systems so that we don't just put bandages on problems that we have of today, but that we're actually creating the kind of sustainable infrastructure and systems that are necessary for our parks to thrive, for our communities to be healthy. You know, you raised some interesting points there, and, you know, I can't believe it's been a decade since Sandy because it just seemed like yesterday we were writing about that, and I remember we did a, a big series of stories looking at an, a number of parks, um, Fire Island National Seashore and uh, certainly Gateway um, National Recreation there in the New Jersey, New York metropolitan areas as well as other parks, and lessons learned, and with the political nature of our government and how it drives the park service, depending on who's in the White House and depending, you know, whether they lean right or lean left, does that impact the decisions that the park service makes? And I'm wondering, 
you know, at Fire Island, we had the um, the cut or the break in the um, the wilderness area up there that rather than the Otis Pike, Fire Island wilderness area, that rather than filling it in, they left it open, which was a great experiment, which has proven to be incredibly beneficial for the marine environment there in the back bay. And it's just been fascinating, the science that has grown up around there. And then you move down the coast to, to Cape Hatteras National Seashore with um, it's a barrier island. Barrier islands move. Sea level impacts it, and um, storms certainly impact it. And it seems that in that situation at Cape Hatteras, repair comes before letting natural events take place. It's It's got to be a tough choice for the Park Service. I think it is, and I think, you know, their internal policy guides them to first aim to resist, right? To evaluate what it is that they can resist and what they're not able to resist. They need to accept and direct their resources and their efforts to try and do their very best in order to manage our parks and our resources. Um, and I think that the, the reality is that when you center national parks in the climate context, you have this unbelievable physical and political climate solution. You know, we, we recently, NPCA recently did polling and across all political spectrums, an overwhelming 88% or nine out of 10 Americans said that climate change is negatively impacting America's parks. People understand that they are flooding and melting and drying. And, you know, what's also astonishing is that a strong bipartisan majority see parks as part of the solution. And it's, you know, I say astonishing, but it's actually not astonishing because it's obvious. These are places that we connect to that inspire us and we want to protect and care for them. And I'll, I'll just throw out one other statistic for you from this um, polling that we did, which is that a majority of Americans, regardless of their political uh, affiliation, are more likely to support representatives if they are supportive of efforts to address climate change's impacts on national parks. This is different than what we see across the board, right? We yeah. know that for quite a while, the sentiment of the American public has been misunderstood and there has been misperceptions that most people don't know about or care about climate harms when in fact what we've learned most recently through nationwide polling is that far more people know and care and want to see climate action. So these are these are unifying themes. And when you are looking at those unifying themes through the lens of national parks, there is an incredible import, need, and value for us to beeline towards climate solutions. Is there evidence that those polling results are impacting Congress? And by that, I mean, you know, is Congress rising up to share those concerns about the national parks and working to see that the Park Service has the tools necessary to grapple with whether it's climate change or wildfires or any other sort of natural or, or man-inflicted disaster? My sense is that we are in a historic and game-changing moment. 
I think that one thing that became transparent with the passage of the Inflation Reduction Act of 2022, the billion dollars of funding for national parks to support and sustain climate resilience and to invest in transitioning our energy systems and our transportation systems, while also importantly centering the need for science and data to govern what we do and how we do it. I think that the moment that we're in tells us that the times are indeed changing and that there is a willingness for Congress to find uh, solutions. Now, it's deeply unfortunate how divided the vote was in order to pass the Inflation Reduction Act. Yeah. But it's nonetheless law. Good point. Good point. We're talking today with Stephanie Kodish, the Senior Director and Counsel for the National Parks Conservation Association's Clean Air and Climate Programs. We're going to take a short break and we'll be right back. Our friends at Interior Federal Credit Union offer BillPay, a free service in digital banking that allows you to pay your utilities, credit cards, and other bills, as well as track your payments quickly and securely. You can schedule exactly when you need your payment sent and whether to make a one-time or recurring payment. It's convenient and good for the environment. To sign up, log into online banking, choose bill payment from the top tab, and follow the instructions to register. Not a member yet? Go to interiorfcu.org and click on the membership icon on their homepage. Federally insured by NCUA. The Everglades Foundation the only organization whose sole mission is to restore and protect America's Everglades. Learn more at evergladesfoundation.org. Acadia National Park is one of the 10 most popular national parks in the United States. It is also one of the smallest and most vulnerable. That is why Friends of Acadia exists. Friends of Acadia is an independent organization of passionate people, inspiring those who love this magnificent park to make a real and lasting difference for Acadia. You can make a difference at friendsofacadia.org. The Blue Ridge Parkway Foundation is the primary nonprofit fundraising partner for the Blue Ridge Parkway. It is made up of people who have a deep love for this majestic road and want to ensure that its natural beauty and the experiences it offers endure for generations to come. Show your appreciation at brpfoundation.org. Back with Stephanie Kodish, the Senior Director and Counsel for the National Parks Conservation Association's Clean Air and Climate Programs. We're talking about climate change and weather. What's the difference? Where do we see the, the vagaries take hold the strongest? Stephanie, the, the National Park Service's Climate Change Response Program, the team there uses science to help parks manage climate change as well as adapt to what pretty much is an uncertain future are there some good, good examples that you can point to as far as what that program is doing on the ground in the parks to help manage climate change impacts? Yeah, well, so the climate change response program pulls together a great amount of data and they identify different management tools to help individual national parks assess and make management decisions so that when they are faced with hard choices about how they're going to allocate their finite amount of resources, they have the backing and support of other different experiences and how they can go about assessing those situations that are highly 
locally and resource sensitive and specific. So, you know, that is largely the role to sort of provide for an umbrella level of understanding from, from that realm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But in terms of, you know, on the ground um, examples that uh, are going on, would, would one be what's, what's going on with the, the tidal basin project there at the, the national mall? I mean, we've got sea level rise there that's been inundating, you know, um, over by the Thomas Jefferson Memorial and sinking um, some sidewalks twice a day as the tide comes in and comes out. Yeah, and I think that in those situations, there are questions um, that motivate very challenging decisions. They implicate material use, they implicate route, they implicate the wisdom of siting in certain locations over others. Mm -hmm. And those are the kinds of decisions that our superintendents and managers of our federal lands need to make on a more and more frequent basis. Yeah. Yeah. And I guess um, a, a larger example of that being played out right now is up in Yellowstone where they, they are debating um, whether there's a smarter route to put that North entrance road to get it away from the, the Yellowstone river, just because the road, I guess it's been a miracle that it hasn't been impacted like this before, either from floodwaters coming up from the, the river during storms or cliff slides falling down upon the road. And so I know I've talked to the superintendent, Cam Sholley, and you know they're definitely looking at rerouting it with climate change in mind. That's right. And those you know have... Uh, grave and clear implications for so many different uh, buildings and roads and bridges. And there's a need to think about how do you rebuild effectively? How do you route those roads to take care that you are being cognizant of shifts in climate, anticipating more extreme weather events, using materials, green infrastructure that can be more resilient, not only to coming climate changes, but also to help mitigate those impacts. For example, if you're talking about coastal restoration, or if you're talking about wetlands or seagrasses, how do you combine the need for more resilient infrastructure with the potential to also serve as a sink for carbon and help absorb some of the carbon in the atmosphere that's contributing to the harm. Yeah, I guess in um, some of these cases, it, it basically gives the, the Park Service a, a do-over, so to speak, um, to try and correct something that was um, put in the wrong place um, initially or which time has dictated that it needs to be removed. You know, I'm kind of curious, you go down to Everglades National Park in the Flamingo area, and um, I think there was um, hurricanes back in 2005 that wiped out the Flamingo Lodge. And ever since then, they've been trying to come up with a plan to to provide housing there. And they're, they're making progress. They've got the, um, for lack of a better word, uh, the glamping tents or the eco tents that can be pulled down um, in the face of a hurricane like Ian. And they're, they're also um, creating um, modular type lodging units that I think are either on a, a six foot or a 10 foot stilt, so to speak, to deal with hurricanes and, and withstand them. And, you know, it would have been curious um, if Ian had made a direct hit 
on Flamingo area, how those would have played out. You know, were they good decisions and, and are they engineered properly to withstand climate change? It'd be an interesting live experiment, if you will. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that unfortunately, the more of these experiences uh, that the park service is having that, that communities are facing, the more we are realizing the kinds of solutions that are needed to help us adapt and also recognize where those limits are. Yeah, yeah. We talk about climate change, and, and often we're, we're talking about the, the big, well-known parks, the Everglades, the Yellowstones, um, whatever. There was an interesting um, item that came across my desk recently from Glacier Bay National Park and Preserve. And you mentioned Glacier Bay, and if you've seen pictures, if you've been fortunate enough to, to go there, the main memory you come away with is all those rivers of ice and all those snow-clad mountains. And just recently, on September 17th, there was a landslide at the top of uh, the Lamplu Glacier, I believe, if I pronounce that correctly. And it covered almost 2,000 acres with mud and dirt and other debris that, that had come down. Um, climate change or natural natural events? Any any thoughts on that? It's a tough one. Um, they, they do get um, landslides there. There was one in 2012. I think there was one in 2014. Um, so they're not totally alien to that it's just the the contrast between these rivers of ice and being covered by a, a dirt and mud landslide yeah i mean i think about it not in terms of whether an event would or would not happen uh with or without climate change but how much intensity how much more devastating are the effects of that storm, that flood, that mudslide. And I think that amplifying factor is uh, a direct line from climate change. And I think what I wanna just say is that there, there is a direct connection between those more intense, more frequent events. Not, It's not a question of whether they would or would not happen. It's a question of degree. It's a question of how great is the devastation going to be to these parks and resources, whether and how will different wildlife species and ecosystems be able to replenish and restore. You know, that's a good good point. The resiliency of the wildlife, of nature. And, you know, we were talking about hurricanes and how Hurricane Ian became such a potent storm because of warmer ocean waters. And one of the impacts of climate change that I think is often forgotten about is what's going on beneath the surface of the oceans. And specifically in the Caribbean and, and creeping up into Florida, you've got the stony coral tissue disease, which is devastating some of the coral reefs down there. And I had a, a marine biologist tell, tell me, she wrote a story for the traveler, that what's going on with the corals is an ecosystem event much as the 1988 wildfires in Yellowstone were an ecosystem event, and we have to pay attention with it. And getting back to resiliency, I, I know there are, is um, experiments with different treatments to, to try and slow the spread of stony coral disease, but there's news that the Great Barrier Reef over in Australia, which we had 
thought was being lost to, to coral bleaching is coming back. A- any thoughts on what's going on there? I mean, uh, are, are corals figuring out a, a way to, to survive warmer temperatures? Um, I can't speak to that. I am, I, um, yeah, I can't speak to that. Sorry. If you All right, no worries. Thought, I, thought I'd throw it out there. Yeah, no, I, that's a fascinating study and a fascinating question. I, I would love to learn more about that. Yeah, no, it, um, you know, too often we, we look at uh, terra firma and what's happening on, on top of the ground, and it's easier to see certainly than um, diving underwater to, to look at what's going on with the corals and the fisheries that are that are impacted by all these dynamic changes that are going on. It, it's certainly, I'm sorry, go ahead. Well, you know, what you just mentioned actually, I think, makes me think about a really compelling point, which is the resilience of nature. And that when we create the opportunity, when we mitigate the harm, it astounds us. But at the same time, the glaciers in Glacier National Park continue to shrink. There was a study earlier this year from Kenai Fjords National Park and looked at 19 glaciers, and I think only two or four of those were advancing. Everything else was retreating. When you take the glaciers out of a place like Glacier National Park, it has a profound impact on nature and wildlife and flora, as well as the the human experience. And so the resiliency there, I don't think we're going to see in our lifetimes. No, I, I think that uh, you are right, and it is important to point out that some of these changes are irreversible. Certainly in our lifetimes and in, in the lifetimes of our children, when you, when you consider how long it has taken to create a glacier, you know, what temperature changes have to take effect and, and last for a long time. You know, we had a, a story um, from our Canadian editor um, about the... Athabasca, if I pronounce that right, glacier up in um, Jasper National Park. And she was up there recently, and there are markers on the ground. 1982, this is how far the glacier came down. 1992, this is where the great glacier was. Basically, those markers were showing glacial retreat. And one of our readers said, well, well so what? I mean, I, I, I read someplace that 15,000 years ago, these places were, were under 3,000 feet of ice. And then another, another reader pointed out that you can't negate human-caused impacts with climate by pointing back 15,000 years. It's an interesting point. It is, and I think it's a wise point. Well, Stephanie, it's been great catching up today and, and talking about climate change in, in the park system. Um, it, it no doubt lends to a lot of research um, that's going on. and. Um, NPCA, I'm, I'm guessing, is involved in a lot of projects to both raise the um, the issue with the general public and to, to, to work with the Park Service to try and get the tools and the resources they need to adapt. That's right. Um, it's, it's incredibly important that our parks have the kind of funding that they need uh, in order to have ample staffing, to be able to train the staff to do the work that is necessary, to be able to have the funding and resources to address disasters that inevitably um, climate is driving with greater frequency. 
Um, and it's likewise very important for us to ensure that there are strong and robust policies that will help support adaptive practices that will mitigate greenhouse gases from fossil fuel combustion, and that will ultimately be win-win-win solutions that will not only benefit national parks and communities, but our planet and help address the climate crisis. Yeah, well, we'll be watching and um, maybe we should catch up in about six months or a year and, and um, take count of what has happened or what hasn't happened. I would be delighted to connect with you then and hope for some good stories. Okay, thanks again, Stephanie. Good to talk with you. Good to talk with you as well, Kurt. That's our show for this week. We hope you enjoyed it. Next week, we'll be looking back on 25 years of work the Grand Teton National Park Foundation has provided its namesake park. Work that you can see in the restored trail network in the Jenny Lake area of the park, the Craig Thomas Discovery Center, and the 640 acres along Mormon Row that will not be developed into ranchettes. For The Traveler, this is Kurt Repencheck. See you in the parks. The composers and musicians at Orange Tree Productions have created a unique collection known as the National Park Series that has grown to include more than 30 CD titles. Composed against the backdrop of a park's sounds of nature, these musical scores will connect you with these beautiful places and take you there, at least in your mind. This collection is the number one selling National Park audio series in the world and provides the background music for National Park's Travelers podcasts. Visit them at orangetreeproductions.com. Editing and production work for the National Parks Traveler podcast is done by Splitbeard Productions. You can learn more about us at splitbeardproductions.com. National Parks Traveler is a 501c3 nonprofit media organization that provides daily editorial coverage of national parks and protected areas. Traveler's coverage is made possible by reader and listener donations. Visit nationalparkstraveler.org.